Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us for the first time. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Hold on to what is good, even if it's a handful of earth. Hold on to what you believe even if it's a tree that stands by itself. Hold on to what you must do, even if it's a long way from here. Hold on to your life, even if it's easier to let go. Hold on to my hand, even if someday I'll be gone away from you. What keeps us focused as a congregation is knowing what we're here for. What we're here for is our mission And we say our mission every Sunday morning. Together we say, we gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds, and every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Now is the time in our service when we breathe deeply together. We plant our feet on the floor and we fill our bodies with life-giving air. Our thoughts continue to scurry around. Sometimes we can just say, thinking, 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 and return our attention to our breath. It is in this way that we find the stillness and learn to dwell in it for a moment at a time. It is in this place of stillness that we find renewal and clarity. It is a practice that allows us to become more spiritually sturdy. As we become stronger, we become better companions to those around us. 
those who are sorrowing and those who are rejoicing. We hold in our hearts those who are suffering today. We hold in our hearts especially the Syrian refugees who are being crowded into places where the quality of life is awful and yet still way better than what they left. We hold in our hearts the woman that Kaya and I met several weekends ago who had walked for two weeks from Guatemala and had been the last five days without food or water. There is so much sorrow in this world. And yet we fail if we allow ourselves to be crippled by it. We become spiritually sturdy in order to face sorrow and joy. Let us enter the silence together. Mindful that small child noises count as silence in this congregation. We have had a lot of loss in this congregation this year. People have lost their mothers and fathers, grown children. I want to talk to you about the grief that comes with loss. Grief is a reflection of the loss of a connection that you felt, a felt connection. And we feel connected to our work, to our friends, our homes, our animal companions, to our, our bodies, our senses, to our possessions. So we feel grief when a job that was part of our identity is, is lost. And we feel grief when we don't um, see as well as we used to or hear as well as we used to or we feel grief when we've lost a, a place that we loved or when a home or apartment is damaged and we have almost all experienced the loss of a beloved animal who was part of the family. Some studies show that people love their favorite animal in the family pretty much the same intensity as they love their partner or spouse. A sociologist I uh, was reading, she asked her husband, who had a soul dog, his dog was his soulmate, he would tell anybody that. She said, so if you had to pick between the dog and me, she said he just closed his eyes and said, please don't make me think about that. So the biggest, most supported grief by our culture is the loss of beloved people. Our culture will support you if you've lost a beloved person. And um, in most cultures, there are ways to make your mourning visible. Mourning is the outward manifestation of inner grief, right? Right? So, um, 
Some people in their culture, they wear black to signify mourning. And uh, a few cultures wear white. Some cultures, uh, Victorian culture had, for people who could afford it, mourning clothes for a while that were black and kind of heavy. And then you had half mourning, which was purple clothes or gray clothes before you could wear bright colors again and go back into society. But we, right now, we live in a move-on culture. Move on. So you might wear black to the funeral, but after that, eh. And you're not really supposed to sit by yourself and feel your sorrow. You're supposed to get on out there. Get out there. Get, get around friends. Don't isolate yourself. Move on. Move on. It's been, it's been three weeks. Come on. And if you have friends who are watching you go through a grief, they may talk to you about the stages of grief. They may talk to you about denial, where you say, no, this isn't happening. Or they may talk to you about anger, where you go, oh, I'm so mad at God for me. This can't be. This is a terrible world. I'm, oh. um, bargaining is, is the stage, the next stage, I want to say. Um, where you just say, oh, please, I'll be a really, really good person from now on if you only bring my job back or bring my person back or I'll do anything. And then there's depression, which I do not have to explain to anybody. And then there's acceptance. You get used to the new normal. You move on. But what people don't tell you, and, you know, your friends might be watching to see what stage of grief are you in now? Are you doing it all right? Are you doing it properly? But nobody tells you that the stages happen in a kind of a wild, curly-cued swirl. And you might go straight from denial to depression, and then you might be in anger, and it might take a couple of years before you get to the bargaining part, or, you know, you... you Sometimes you're in denial and anger at the same time, and you go, I'm really mad, but it's not about that. The stages are not orderly. And some of them you go into three times or 14 times, and others you might skip entirely. There's no right way to grieve. Don't let anybody tell you that there is. The only way that makes it take a lot longer than it needs to is if you fight doing it. I come from a family or a culture, the evangelical Christian culture, where you're encouraged not to be sad. And you're told stories like, um, you know, when you're on the highway and a big truck passes you and the shadow of the truck passes over your car, did you actually get run over by that truck? No, you just got run over by the shadow of the truck. Yeah, well, that's how the death of your mama is. She just got run over by the shadow of the truck. She, she's not really dead. Well, you know, she feels pretty darn dead to me. Can't talk to her anymore. So be happy. And don't grieve because that's a lack of faith or something. I never quite got it straight. But there are lots of people who will tell you you're not grieving right. Um, one of the phases of grief that I noticed for my, in my years as a 
therapist and a you know human, is that uh, people get ADD when they're grieving, a, a attention deficit disorder. You can't concentrate on anything for a very long time. You don't really want to read anything. You can't really pay attention to television shows. You space out in the middle of a conversation. You have more car accidents than normal, uh, especially when going through something like a divorce where there's a lot of grief in there. You have to drive really carefully, and you have to not grind your teeth. There's the ADD part and the tooth grinding part of grief. And so people might say, you're not crying enough, or you're crying too much, or I can't believe you were laughing at the funeral reception. You shouldn't get married so close to the death of your father. You made too much of a display of sorrow. It was pretty vulgar the way you were wailing. You're just too sad. It's been six months. You're too sad. What, you're over it already? It's over been three days. Mourning is what people see on the outside. Grieving is what you do on the inside. So there's no way people can know how much you're grieving or where you're grieving, where you are in the process of grieving, whatever that is, and what's appropriate. It's, um, it's common for people to compare their griefs to other people's griefs. And they'll say, I just don't know why I'm so sad about my dog. She was just a dog, and, the, and my friend has lost her dad, and I shouldn't be grieving because she's grieving. And you, you do a kind of a ridiculous um, comparison because really there is, grief is a no-comparison zone. It's a no-judgment zone, too, or it should be. And so whatever your grief is, is your grief. And whatever your pain is, is your pain. And I don't know why people insist on trying to diminish your pain by saying, well, it could be worse. Yeah, of course it could be worse. But that doesn't mean you don't have the right to your experience and your pain. And nobody knows that that dog is the one that got you through the death of your parents and your divorce. Nobody knows. You can't make people understand who this person was to you. And sometimes what happens is um, that old griefs zoom through time and attach to new griefs, and you feel the old griefs or whatever's left of the old griefs. For example... Um, my mother got sick from breast cancer when I was 19 years old, and she died when I was 23. She died in January. I was supposed to get married in May. And so I um, went straight from her funeral to the airport to get on a plane to go to California to meet Mark, his parents, his family. So straight from the funeral, I'm meeting the family of this guy that I'm supposed to marry um, in a few months, and I didn't feel anything but hungry and angry, and I'd never cried very much after my mother died, and I thought, um, 
that maybe suddenly I had gotten all that faith they were talking about uh, that I was supposed to have, or um, maybe I had done a lot of grieving in the five years she was sick because she was sick a long time. But then what happened was years later, I was living in South Carolina, had a best friend dear to my heart. She moved to Florida and I fell apart. My whole life just crumbled. And I cried every day. And I thought, this is sad, but it's ridiculous. I should not be crying every day because my friend moved to Florida. I mean, I can go visit. And this is more than I grieved about my mother. And then I thought, oh, this is me grieving about my mother. It just flew through time and attached to something else. Grief doesn't pay any attention to time limits. Here's what Jody Picoult says in My Sister's Keeper. There should be a statute of limitation on grief, a rule book that says that it's all right to wake up crying, but only for a month, that after 42 days, you will no longer turn with your heart racing certain you have heard her call out your name that there will be no fine imposed if you feel the need to clean out her desk, take down her artwork from the refrigerator, turn over a school portrait as you pass, if only because it cuts you fresh again to see it, that it's okay to measure the time she's been gone the way we once measured her birthday. John Irving in A Prayer for Owen Meany says, "When when someone you love dies and you're not expecting it, you don't lose her all at once. You lose her in pieces over a long time. The way the mail stops coming and her scent fades from the pillows and even from the clothes in her closet and drawers. Gradually, you accumulate the parts of her that are gone. Just when the day comes, when there's a particular missing part that overwhelms you with the feeling that she's gone forever, there comes another day and another specifically missing part. So there's pain in grief, and there's also suffering in grief. There's pain and there's suffering. And some people say pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. But that seems cruel to me. I don't like that. Um, It feels harsh, but I kind of know what they're talking about. I mean, pain comes from what happened, and suffering comes from the stories that you tell yourself about what happened. So... Most of us have stories that we tell ourselves about a loss. If only I had done this or that, I wouldn't have lost a job. If only I had um, had this or that practice or exercise or diet or whatever, I wouldn't have um, lost whatever physicality I've lost. I, if I, um, if we had just badgered the doctors to do that one extra test, he wouldn't have died. If I had only tried harder, there's a lot of guilt layered in most grief. There's guilt about what what were the last words you said to somebody that were angry or things that you should have said that you didn't say. And now they're gone. And you also have the grief and the, the... guilt about um, 
I could have reconciled, and now there's no chance left to reconcile. And there's fear in grief, too. There's, who will I be now without this person or without this job? Who will I be in the world? What, who, how will I get along? And there's shame in some grief, too. We live in a Puritan culture, and the Puritanism on the bottom of our culture says um, God blesses some people, uh, and the way you can tell if people are blessed is if they're healthy and wealthy. And so the healthy and wealthy among us are the blessed. And if you're not healthy and if you're not wealthy, then you are mm, unblessed, not blessed. There's something wrong with you. And so just the fact that a person is healthy or rich makes us trust them because they must be doing something right because God obviously likes them better. And all of that is unconscious. Most people will never say that out loud, but that is unconscious running through the bottom of our culture. And so if you've lost somebody, um, especially this is true of uh, widows, and, you know, widows are supposed to keep their husbands healthy. And so if he dies, you didn't feed him right, or you didn't protect him right. And widowers, too, you didn't do something that could have saved her. And there's approbation among the comfort. Like, well, too bad you let him smoke for that long. So when we're down, we also can feel kind of shamed and found wanting. So how do you get over grief? You don't. You don't. There's just more and more time between times that you get stabbed in the heart. The wounds become scars. And the scars don't go away. And in fact, they make us who we are. The older you get, the more scars you have on your heart. You're like an ancient gnarled tree. And we love trees. We need to learn to love the scars on our heart and our insides. It's like, yep, that one was from when I lost this, and this one's when when I lost that. And And loss can make you more compassionate. Can, if you let it. What do you say to somebody who's lost someone? What's the magic thing to say? There isn't one. There is not one. Trust me, I'm a professional. Seriously, there's nothing that works. It's just being there. Your presence is a ministry and a gift. And the less you say, the better, usually. Although when you shake somebody's hand and say something innocuous at a memorial service, they don't, they're not evaluating what you say. They're not going, oh, that was innocuous. They're thinking, thank goodness that you're here. I feel your touch. I see your presence. It means a lot. And then gradually you remember with more love and less hurt. The proportions change. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says this, the reality is that you will grieve forever. You will not 
get over the loss of a loved one. You'll learn to live with it. You will heal and you will rebuild yourself around the loss you've suffered. You will be whole again, but you will never be the same, nor should you be the same, nor would you want to. Anne Lamott says, you will lose someone you can't live without. And your heart will be badly broken, and the bad news is that you will never completely get over the loss of your beloved. But this is also the good news. They live forever in your broken heart that doesn't seal back up. And you come through. It's like having a broken leg that never heals perfectly. It still hurts when the weather gets cold. But you learn to dance with a limp. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Remember the way of the winds and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.